Hi there! Welcome to Textures, a podcast about arts, design and entrepreneurship. My name is Valérie Legras. In each episode, I meet with an artist, designer, creator, innovator, individuals who add textures to our world. We discuss how they are able to make it happen. Join me in discovering their world, their work, and how they go about living and leading a life that inspires themselves and others. Today, I have the pleasure to host Jonathan Glatt, owner and creative director of O&G Studio in Warren, Rhode Island. O&G designs and manufactures furniture that defy time and tradition including the most extensive and evocative line of hand-built Windsor chair on the market. With a commitment to honor and build upon American design tradition, Jonathan and his talented team look to the past for inspiration and reinvent the classic for contemporary living. We will hear all about how Jonathan began as a jewelry designer, evolving into the design entrepreneur he is today designing and producing furniture, light fixtures, mirror, and hardware. Everything is 100% American and made by hand. One of my children has been studying in Rhode Island, and during one of my visits, I could not help but reach out to ONG and go visit. It was fascinating. ONG has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Architectural Digest, El Decor, Dwell, Martha Stewart Living, the London Design Museum, and was named by Vogue as one of 10 contemporary designers to collect today. What a conversation starter. But how did all of this started 11 years ago? This is what you're going to hear in this episode of Textures. I had the chance to personally meet with Jonathan, visit the studio, and witness the production. You will notice a special guest join us for a few times, just a few barks. Hi, Jonathan. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh, hi, Valerie. Nice to be here. Nice to speak with you. Uh, so I visited your beautiful company a couple of months ago. It's in Rhode Island, in Warren. Uh, I heard about you actually um, reading magazines and also I think we had a collaboration a long time ago with a rejuvenation. Mm -hmm. And that's how I heard about you when I Googled your name. And uh, since then, I'm following you on Instagram. And I had the opportunity to be in wow. your area. So I just popped up. And I had a pleasure to visit an amazing company with an amazing team. Uh, and it's very something very unique. And I wanted to ask you, how did all this started? Oh, that, that's a great question. I think it, it sounds inevitable in the telling, but it was not a straight path. Uh, I had gone to undergraduate school for jewelry and silversmithing and really enjoyed working in metal. And one year I applied for an internship at Sotheby's and I wanted to work in a department where there was metal. So silver department, arms and armor. Uh, they invited me in, but they did not give me a spot in any of those departments, but I was given a spot in the American furniture department which uh, at the time, 
Sorry if you hear that noise in the background. That's, That's fine. fine. It's awesome. <laughs> life. <laughs> Uh, at the time, uh, was headed by Leslie Kino, uh, who later went on to become famous on Antiques Roadshow with his brother Lee. Uh, Wendell Garrett, who had been the editor-in-chief of Antiques Magazine for, I think at the time, probably been about 25, 30 years. And Nancy Druckmann, who was in charge of the American folk art department. So I had always... Uh, peripherally loved antiques, architecture, furniture, but it was there that I really started to dig in and, and look at things. There was so much coming across the desk and so much to learn from the experienced people around me that it really seeded a love for, uh, you know, for antique furniture and for American design. And I think when you, with a, the difference between an auction house and a museum is auction house gets lots of okay stuff and occasional great stuff, whereas museums typically show all great stuff. And so seeing that kind of march of things go by, you start to, it, it almost becomes like a visual flip book of design evolution and craft evolution. The periods that I saw while I was there were from mid 1600s up until about the 1830s. So it was almost like, you know, taking a chair and putting it in a flip book and it turned from a pilgrim chair into this like delicate, you know, Sheridan or federal period chair. So it really like, changed my design outlook and really played to my love of looking for subtle details and things. Were you and, documented details? I mean, just like you were flipping the chairs around or the furniture around, I just finding out how things were working and how they- Absolutely, and I, I think, um, so I, I went back to school, I finished my degree in, uh, in jewelry and metalsmithing, and then I went back to Sotheby's where this time they did give me a job working with metal. I was in the silver department. And because I knew so much more about metal, being able to turn the silver pieces upside down and look how they were put together, uh, I understood a lot more about it. And it was just amazing you know, what I learned uh, in that department. And that department, the items were small. So my desk was in, you know, the, in the shelves filled with millions of dollars worth of silver and could just kind of, you know, turn around or lunchtime, you know, go up and down the aisles and examine these pieces. So it was a really amazing experience. Um, I ended up leaving Sotheby's, opening my own jewelry studio. This was all down in, uh, in New York. And then eventually uh, my now wife, uh, she was a commercial photographer. We decided we didn't want to be in New York anymore. We had been to Providence, Rhode Island, liked it. We knew one person up here and we knew there was a jewelry industry up here. So we decided to, to up and move. We were in Rhode Island for less than a year and uh, I had a, a break between jobs and was living right down the street from RISD and I uh, kind of uh, on a whim decided I was going to apply to grad school which I never thought I was going to do but I applied and they let me in and it was a two-year program and it was a really spectacular program I had a great time I think it was the second part of my education where I had been out in the real world so managing workload was not difficult and uh, I had a lot of technical experience under my belt. So I felt like I had the tools to execute my ideas. So I think grad school for me was a lot more about thinking about ideas and less about figuring out how to execute them. 
uh, and I had really great teachers there. So while I was in grad school, I, um, I had a friend whose father passed away, left him a big antique collection. The friend had just bought a building in Warren, where we are now, which at the time was known for antique stores. And he knew nothing about all this, but he wanted to sell it. He had a storefront on the first floor of his building, was hoping that selling some of his father's collection could kind of, you know, help him along his way in life. So I had offered to help. And we quickly went from uh, selling what his father had left to going out and buying more. And I was at a, uh, I was at a house auction in Western Rhode Island a little colonial house, same family had owned it for about 90 years, and everything was for sale, including the house. And it, it dawned on me as I was sitting there, I was like, oh, you could just buy all this stuff, buy all this, you know, nice things, junk. Like, there was one lot, it was a dumpster full of furniture, and you could buy that. And then, <laughs> oh, you know, really spectacular, I found some some great things. And um, and I went home, and I said to my, my wife, I said, you know what, we could just buy a house. I saw this really cool house, we could buy it. And we were 23 at the time. Oh, that's and, nice. Uh, <laughs> so we went out, we looked at this house, we went back a few times, and we started to think like maybe we should look at more than one house if we're going to buy one. And um, I came out to the store in Warren, I forgot my keys. A uh, friend was coming back from Providence with his keys, and I just started walking around the neighborhood and I saw our house, which we ended up buying a few months later still in grad school. Then uh, we ended up finding studio space here in Warren in the building that we're now in. Uh, while I was in grad school, I had my jewelry studio, my wife had her photography studio, and we, uh, you know, we worked along, graduated grad school. I had a jewelry company. We were selling semi-precious and, um, you know, and plastic and steel jewelry. Um, it was a lot of fun, but uh, jewelry industry, was uh, changing metal prices were you know that was when they were going from seven dollars an ounce for silver up to you know twenty thirty forty fifty dollars an ounce so I started pulling back from that and had a lot of artist friends who were doing larger scale fabrication and they would come to me for their kind of hardware scale pieces which for me was huge for them was too small and as I got more of that, the pieces grew larger and the hardware turned to furniture and the furniture turned to architectural pieces. And um, it was interesting. It was a real kind of uh, challenging lesson in managing projects, learning new skills, learning a wide range of skills. But it was, uh, it was not very much about design. It was about lots of problem solving, but not as much about design. And I didn't love doing it. And at that point, I didn't think I wanted to go back to jewelry. So I really enjoyed doing the furniture pieces. Uh, had picked up uh, more experience in woodwork through those. And the, the, the two, I mean, you had to, I mean, you're, you're, you evolve during that time, but I guess your studio evolved because you don't use the same tool. I mean, if yes. from jewelry, which I understand is most probably a very, very small tools, you start to do bigger scale and then kind of furniture and architectural elements you need to you know, I mean everything involved here yeah so I had a beautiful little jewelry studio um, in a shared space with my wife I had outfitted our garage with a forge for ironwork and woodworking tools and I'd squeezed a number of projects out of there uh, it got cold in the winter 
I moved that stuff into the space with my wife, which did not fly for very long because dusty woodworking tools and photography are not friends. No. <laughs> uh, and then I, I had a space within our building, which was only about 1,200 square feet, but it was really nicely organized and outfitted to do you know, a huge range of of work, uh, you know, from woodworking to, you know, welding and ironwork and all the forging work still happened back home in the garage because that's okay to do in the cold. But, um, <laughs> but it, it definitely changed over that time. It, it got, it changed quite a bit. Um, 2008 hit and I did not love the fabrication work. I didn't really feel a slowdown with that work at that time but it seemed like a good time to kind of uh, try out something that maybe otherwise would have seemed risky because I certainly wasn't at risk of somebody offering me a great job in mm -hmm. 2008. <laughs> so um, I had a, a friend I'd met in grad school who had moved back to Rhode Island. Um, her name is Sarah Osana. Her and I had uh, talked about starting a furniture company. She was an interior architect and so we were both kind of circling the same world at that time. And we decided to start ONG. That was the end of 2008. We were sort of officially born in 2009. And uh, we, we both loved a lot of the same things. And we settled on the Windsor chair as what we were going to start with. Uh, part of the reason was we loved Windsor chairs. Thinking back to what I had learned at Sotheby's, they were a really um, amazing embodiment of things that designers love. They look beautiful, they function beautifully, they are very much about how you make them as much as they are about how you use them. And they're a real iconic American form. It is, I mean, when I went to design school, you know, when I was in France, that was, if you were, I mean, we didn't learn much about American design, but if mm -hmm. something that was coming to uh, our mind when we're talking about American design was definitely the window chair. You know, that's, that's cool. Really. It's, it's easy to identify, you know, it makes sense in a lot of ways. And most of American design doesn't, doesn't loom large in people's minds about what it actually is. Certain designers, certain, you know, objects from here and there, but, but, uh, that's interesting to hear you say that because in my head like oh, if yeah. there's anything that does sort of embody it that that's definitely one of the forms so and not uh not coincidental to that was um there was a a company in warren called warren chairworks which made just antique like made after uh you know traditional uh windsor chairs and they sold them primarily through a network of dealers uh, that owned antique stores and they, they were beautiful versions of Windsor chairs. They were built like true Windsor chairs. So with all of the uh, construction details that, um, that really define what a Windsor chair is. And we had talked to them and said, you know, we love Windsor chairs. We want to do modern Windsor chairs. If, um, if things really take off here, we want to do production. Would you consider taking on production for us? And they said yes, because it was 2008 and the phone wasn't really ringing. Um, and so we started from there. So we made the designs. Uh, I would make the tooling, send the tooling over to them. And, uh, and when I say send over, it really meant like walk down the hall. Like, yeah. 
and we tried that for we tried that for a bit and it didn't it didn't quite work as intended part of it was um the expectations of their clients and the expectations of our clients were different enough um but you were selling through you you were not selling through them you were just making the production for them right right we were making our own original designs and and they were essentially the job shop making this, but, but you were Setting through your your yourself only yourself not through them correct yeah, okay and we had a shop but we it, there was only so much that we could keep up with so we looked to them to kind of you know do uh you know take on some of the the volume so we had tried that and it, and it didn't quite work so we started hiring and training um, our own craftspeople and that worked well but it's a very particular type of woodwork. Uh, not really a skill that's out in the field like great cabinet making or you know great table makers it's just something that um, is not really out there so we had to train people from the ground up and it's difficult uh, it takes a long time it takes a certain amount of artistry and I say that meaning you um, you don't always have dimensions to go by you don't always have hard measurements uh, a good part of Windsor chair making is being a sculptor is you know measurements get you in the ballpark but your eye tells you what's actually right and you have to have a lot of feel for the material because it's thin material steam bent parts you have to really um, work with the grain of the material and the it's strength it's a piece of art it's just like it's a sculpture <laughs> it is it's it's more sculpture than cabinet making for yeah. sure so we um, we plotted along with our own team, and we couldn't really train fast enough to keep up with uh, with the volume. And business was picking up; people were interested. Uh, small rewind here: we're really known for color. One of our original ideas was, um, you know, as great as Windsor chairs are especially in New England, uh, it's also something that people can dismiss because they, they bring all their own ideas to it. So we wanted them to look at them fresh. Um, and a lot of people would see them and say, oh, yeah, you know, my parents had them, grandparents had them, old steakhouse down the street, something like that. Yeah. <laughs> and they were usually bad versions of Windsor chairs that they're referring to. But so we loved color, and by putting, you know, the, the bright colors on the chairs was a way to get people to stop and look and then draw them into like you know what really were the details and the difference so you have a, i mean you, you know we have a listener to go on your website or on your instagram you have a very broad uh, palette of color mm -hmm. very very bright uh i mean bright all kind of i mean a big range i would say um did you start it already with a at the beginning you started with a big palette of color, or um, the beginning was really basic. It was it was paint at the time, not stain. Uh, it was basically your CMYK, your color, your printer colors. So the really bright cyan, magenta, um, and and no wood tones at the time uh, was the beginning of uh, the popularity of walnut and. We had been to ICFF and it felt like a sea of walnut and as beautiful as walnut is, we just didn't think that was going to uh, serve us well and standing out. Yeah. So it was paint colors. Uh, not too long in, we realized, you know, we were, we were painting over uh, beautiful, beautiful wood. wood. <laughs> yes, beautiful kind of joinery details. 
and we took those original colors, developed them as stains, and then have grown the, the palette since then. And I think the stain colors have been something that you really come to know and for. And, and then you, you, you make your color in the house, right? We do, yes. Yeah, so we mix all the colors and the, um, the, the dye products themselves are, are not as, uh, you know, are, are not something that's super unique to us, but the process of how we get those intense colors on the wood um, that's pretty unique to us and you know we created that through a sort of a mixture of uh, persistence and ignorance and maybe a little bit of being smart <laughs> and, uh, and we got in pretty deep with our own thing and, and it's worked out well for us. I mean it definitely stands out and it definitely is part of your brand today I mean yes. and you have two types of wood and correct me if I'm wrong you have ash and maple maple Yes. So of course the stain react totally differently on a, on both uh, material, wood grain. Very differently. They um, you know, to be honest, I don't remember how we ended up kind of coming to the two materials at the beginning. But usually of, things like that is always by chance. It's just like there is a very something like serendipity it just happened and say, oh I wow. think you're right. It must have been we accidentally ordered, you know, maple one day instead of ash and we just went with it. Something like that. Um, but what they what the two uh, options do and I think what the color palette does is our form is is fixed, right? You buy a chair, the form is fixed through the different options of color and then the depth added by the different wood types. So maple is very smooth, very iridescent, and ash has a really pronounced, almost topographical texture. Um, through all of those options, designers can enter into the pieces and can use them in, in really, you know, infinite number of ways. So, you know, a chair that's in our, our deep navy, our azimuth blue in ash, uh, same chair, very different than it would be in our you know bright kind of iridescent turmeric yellow and maple so it really opens up the the options for what our clientele can do you know how they can see their work within our work and i think that's been part of our success with designers is i feel like we have a strong point of view but designers can actually um you know they can navigate through it in a way that really gives them um multiple options you yeah. make it there and, and so when you um because of course the, the the fact that you have to train people quite a you know quite a bit and the learning curve you know it's it of course takes time it's of course it's an investment um carving wood can also come with some surprise sometimes i mean i remember when i visited the, the your, your your shop you can carve and all of a sudden you almost at the end and you're going to not to notice an imperfection in the wood um, and then you have to discard the piece and then you have to start it. I mean, the process is so meticulous, so precise, so, um, I mean, beautiful, but of course it comes at a price. So it has to be understood by your designer uh, customer and they have to transmit to their own uh, customer. So education is a big thing, I guess, for you to communicate. I mean, how does it, it work? It is. Um, I, you know, I think we could be a lot better at it. And like when you came to visit, you know, we really love having visitors because I think, you know, to walk through the shop and to, and to see, uh, you know, firsthand everything that goes into a piece 
is very different than seeing a finished piece. You know, finished pieces, they look so inevitable. They look like, of course it would be that way. Um, yes, you're right. That's, yeah, you don't... that's a great thing in the finished piece, um, but it takes a lot of sweating to get it to look that way. And there's, it can go wrong at any stage in the process right up to the end. Um, yeah, because I remember you said that right at the end, some of the chair you could, when you apply the stand, something can happen and, you know, something's going to show that you're not satisfied for the quality of your product. And again, you're going to put it on the side and start again. Yeah, so, it happens. Our, our finish, um, our finish is not a workable finish. It's not like a wipe on stain where you can kind of keep going back into it. It's one and done in terms of applying the color correctly. So if it's not applied correctly, uh, there's very little, very few things that we can kind of get back on track. So uh, all of the prep, all of the wood selection, everything is part of what makes the, the colors achievable. Um, but that last step there can undo all of the, the perfect hard work of previous steps. Um, you know, sometimes I wish we had uh, pieces that were made from discrete parts that, you know, we were sort of assembling together and something went wrong and you weren't losing the whole piece, but it, it's, uh, it's you know, just the fact of it. I have something, I mean, it's nothing to do, but it's kind of similar. Um, so I was born and raised in Champagne. So I remember, you know, back then, uh, because now they have made progress in the cork when you put on the, at the end of a process of making Champagne, Mm -hmm. the cork and this is where it goes and if the cork is from you know with bad quality or is sick or something like that is going to kill all these years of you know the harvesting the grapes you know pressing all the step that takes for months and years they mm -hmm. destroy just at the end because you have a wrong cork and that's exactly yeah. the same story when i was visiting your studio and i was like wow you have to have um very skilled people and very focused and very uh, or detail oriented of course um all the detail that you added and i don't know um, much about american design so i don't know if this is a detail that you revisited or if you it was existed and you i don't know but the the hand carved um head for instance mm -hmm. um so if you can explain a little bit it's um, it's at the end um, of a mirror that you designed, so contemporary mirror, and you took some some of the elements that were on the chairs. And there is a um, you revisited everything to come up with new products. You added some very specific detail with the mother of pearl, that is the eye of a head that you hand carved. I mean, if you can just explain a little bit more about all this detail that makes your product really stand out. Yeah, I mean, you know, as a as a jeweler, no details too small. So uh, I'm always fighting the urge to do tiny things, uh, and you know, drives everybody at the shop crazy. But um, you know, the, that idea of those, you know, those small details, uh, really, you know, goes back to kind of two things I learned at my time at Sotheby's and. Um, there, there was sort of very different things. One was um, there was a piece of furniture, a high boy, so it's a, basically a chest of drawer on, on tall legs came through. And it looked very simple to me. And the auction estimate was estimated at, at 20 times what to me looked like similar pieces. And I couldn't figure out why. And I, you know, finally, um, you know, 
looking at it, trying to understand, I finally went to one of the experts and kind of walked me through it. And the Newport furniture from late 1700s, mid 1700s, late 1700s, uh, it was a, a, two different families, all worked closely together, several generations. And their furniture is known for really being, um, you know, the, the best of the best. And today is, is looked at, um, you know, almost more as, as artwork than furniture. And the difference in their work is that it, everything, the, the material is second to none. Um, and that's partly because of where they were on the trade routes. Um, and the forms were perfect and they were very restrained but they were not stripped back like a shaker piece of furniture, which came later on. But the shakers were all about remove everything. The, this school of furniture was more about refine and highlight. So the forms would be, you know, not just your curved cabriole leg, they would be a perfectly proportioned version of it. The graduating sizes of drawers would, you know, have a, a sort of natural mathematical progression. And the pieces are just really subtle, but really beautiful and not devoid of detail. So they would have small amounts of carving, small amounts of, of, of detailing that would really, you know, really highlight the whole shape and make it, make it, I think, you know, that much more impactful. And then the other thing that I really remembered was we had all this folk art. So folk art was the opposite. It's sort of, you know, defined as, um, as people who were not, did not have any type of classical training but had usually prolific output, uh, creative output. And one of the things that we, um, that, that came through the department a lot at the time were uh, carved wooden canes. And some of them were very detailed and skilled and elaborate. Some of them were really simple. It would be an unusual shape of a root and the top would be carved like a little snake head, you know, really simple, just like a smiley face with two yeah. dots. And so I always, you know, carried, the impact that book, seeing both those things had with me. And um, we do a lot of hand carving on our pieces uh, in terms of, you know, shaping for where your hand rests on a chair. We call it the knuckle. Hand or the, rest, that was, I was yeah. looking for what I was looking, yes, yeah. So we do a lot of that in production and, um, and we do it really well and we do it same, same all the time. So, you know, it, it looks like a machine and I think people are always surprised when it's done by hand, but we invest a lot of time and skill into doing that. And the pieces that you're referring to, um, you know, I wanted to take advantage of those skills, but not have to, not have to create something that would become a production option, not have to create something that we would do over and over again. So the very first one was a continuous armchair, which has one piece of wood bent in two directions to create the armrests and the back rail. Yes, that's beautiful. That is really beautiful. Those are, are one of our most difficult, and those are, you know, if those are sort of the those are the the bullet point, the top of the pyramid for you know the American Windsor chair. Um, they were they were totally new and innovative at the time, and not done anywhere else in the world. Um, and so I was looking at one, and I thought, oh, it's like that arm would that would be funny, like it'd be a snake. I'll do like a root cane, a cane root snake. I'm saying that backwards. Root cane, yes. And um and one head will one side will be the head, one side will be the tail. Yeah. And to be honest, I, I thought it was gonna be goofy. Wasn't totally confident in showing it to anybody. Um somebody at the shop took beautiful pictures, posted it on Instagram, sold right away, and we thought, oh okay, 
there's something there. There's um, something, yeah. <laughs> but didn't that's good. That's the good of thing of social media. You have instant validation or no validation. <laughs> yeah, or or not. Yeah, <laughs> and that's you know that's always a hard part as a designer. Like, when do you ask for validation or when do you just do it anyway? And you know, yeah. at some point people yeah, get because, on. Yeah, because I mean, speaking of that, actually, I'm. Um, I guess when you started your own company in 2008, uh, really doing some, uh, you know, we know that now people buy their furniture out of, of uh, uh, China, mass production, etc. I guess people told you you were crazy to go in this venture. Uh, I mean, I mean, I guess. I, yeah, I yes, I mean, in some ways, yes. There were, I think what was interesting at the time, um, you know, we were making everything here because that's what we knew how to do. We didn't have the capital to go to a furniture manufacturing and invest in inventory. Um, and not, not a little bit of, uh, you know, being control freaks. But... Um, so validation, that, did you have validation? I mean, did people say, yes, go for it? Or, uh, no, no, nobody said. Same thing, you know, I'm trying to... Yeah, nobody, nobody really said just go for it. I think, uh, I don't know if anybody really thought it was going to go anywhere. Um, but, you know, little by little. And yeah. I think it coincided well with um, people were interested in, you know, buying domestic product and buying ethically made product. Uh, and then buying things that mattered, because all of a sudden, everybody got real nervous about their money. So they weren't, they weren't as likely to spend it on things that they didn't feel had lasting value. Um, yeah, so I, and I think, I think now, was, you know, really people really want to have an emotional connection with the piece. And more and more people, or at, at least the, 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 the person you want to, to enjoy your furniture, um, uh, they want to have an emotional connection. So all the detail, all the, the hand carving, but if they understand, it has a meaning. And yes. I think today in design, it's very important that you know, we can, uh, there is of course of a, a world where you can order things online, be delivered within 24 hours, but this is the exact opposite and there is no right or wrong. It's not about that, it's different markets. But I think the people who wants to buy a chair from ONG or Mirror or Bench, I mean, they really understand the process and wants to uh, have a, a connection with it. No, I, I agree and I think, you know, you, we were lucky to have you be able to visit and regional clients or people traveling through. Um, we're working on, you know, trying to peel back the curtain for, you know, for remote clients, which are most of our clients um, and do things, you know, send people pictures partway through the build process so they can, you know, see yeah. somebody working on their piece. But it, you know, it's hard to, um, I shouldn't say it's hard. It's, it's easy to, uh, feel more of an attachment and feel more of an emotion when you understand something uh when you you look at it and it's not just the finished chair you're you're thinking about i was there i saw it being made or i saw the picture of this or i you know understand um more of the story of like the care that was went into it i think uh, you know our product is not anonymous and i think that there's a part of that that makes it enjoyable to live with every day i mean i have pieces here at home where every time I use it, every time I, you know, pull out that drawer or whatever it is, you kind of have a good feeling. And, and I think it's, you know, sort of that, uh, 
you know, having things in your life that you have a little more understanding and a little more of an association with is great. And, you know, it can't be everything. It's exhausting if it were every object in your home. But uh, it is really nice to have, you know, have things that you feel connected to and you feel were cared about in the way they came to you. Yes, and then you can, it's a, you create heirlooms so you can pass it on generation to generation. But also, I wanted to go back to design. So you are... Um, you started with a, you know, the very traditional American design piece, mm -hmm. and then you really evolved. You're creating, you know, you did the bench, but the bench you decided to make it uh, even more interesting by increasing the size, then adding some little detail, and then these details turn out to become um, hardware, and then from hardware you went into um, um, Live fixtures and the brand is really evolving. It's still very strong design that everything is made in house. I, uh, I think mm -hmm. is made in house, and but it's it's the evolution is pretty beautiful and interesting. And even though you started, that's my understanding. You correct me, please, if I do, if I don't. Um, you you just took elements from these uh, ch original chairs and you just kind of destructure it and create it over uh, design pieces. I don't know if this is how you did it, but that's kind of my understanding. Yeah, I think, um, you know, something that I learned as a student at RISD, and then uh, I've taught quite a bit since then, um, I've learned as a teacher, um, your, your starting point uh, is not always evident in the point you are at or where you're going. Um, and I say that to mean that, you know, your initial inspirations uh, when you kind of work through design process and you iterate and you react to what you see interesting in that last little step that you did, uh, you have to be open to knowing or to, you have to be open to, I think, to be okay where that leads. And sometimes it can hew very close to your original idea and sometimes it can really, you know, diverge away. Um, and I think, you know, it's in the, in the process, in the authorship, where you start to see the thread through. And it kind of goes back to what I was talking about earlier, that, that sort of flip book idea. Um, a big, chunky oak pilgrim chair is nothing like a delicate, you know, ribbon-carved federal side chair. But they shared exactly the same starting point, the same, you know, same sort of design DNA but things evolve and change and, and are, are fairly fluid. And so, you know, in that way, um, you know, kind of look to ideas that, that, you know, began with something within our line, some previous design idea and sort of ask like the what if questions, you know, what if this was to turn in this direction? What if we're add this material? What if we go from, you know, pieces that feel light and delicate to pieces that feel, you know, more heavy and grounded. Uh, and, I, you know, I think part of it is that that's how I think as a designer and, you know, keeps it interesting for me. And, um, you know, there's always that, uh, there's always that nagging thought, like, is anybody going to get on board with this? Is this like, you know, <laughs> you know, just kind of a shot out of left field and, you know, you can't, can't uh, hit a home run every time, but, um, it keeps it interesting for me. And I think, you know, by extension, I hope it keeps it interesting, you know, for our clients. Um, 
not don't want not, the idea is not to do something different for its own sake the idea is to kind of you know evolve down a journey and, and hope that you know people are interested to come with you um and not to obviously not to cut off what you've done previously you know so we have um you know you can you can come in and we still have people that um you know that that buy some of the first pieces that we did uh you know some of the first uh things that you know, in my head, we've kind of evolved down the road, but still enjoy those original pieces. So, you know, it becomes more of a, a collection and a story over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's a long right. answer to a short question. Sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. But um, when I was, um, when I visited the studio and I saw the last collection you created with uh, some contemporary chairs and long chairs, beautiful. I mean, just by of course, the design is beautiful, but the detail, the level of detail is absolutely um, astonishing. It's just like when you pull up the pillow and mm-hmm. the way you, I mean, you know, usually you don't want to see what's underneath, you know, if you have, you just like enjoy the piece. But in your case, you just not take the chair apart, but you just, you know, take the pillow, put it up and you see the way it is being built, the level of detail you even put into things that we don't see at all and it's not supposed to be attractive. Like all the, the little strings that support the pillow, uh, everything is uh, like, yeah, jewelry. <laughs> you can see yeah. how um, much you pay attention to the detail and I think that's really what makes your, your, your product really stand, stand out as well, so. Yeah, I, I, it's, uh, it's something I, you know, we've done from the beginning. I think it kind of grew out of chair making. Um, in my head, you can't, you couldn't make a beautiful chair and then not like not spray the color on the bottom of the seat, um, and and also you know part of it is so imagine you just you ordered your chairs from O and G and you waited the eight weeks it takes for eight ten weeks takes for them to come to you, and they come and the delivery guys come and in come these chairs and they're holding them upside down, and you see the bottom and it's unfinished and uncared for that's sort of a letdown um you know so it's really important to us and some people might not be home when it's delivered but honestly that is something you know that that we think about and so the bottoms of our tables are all finished um you know it's something that just you know speaks to the level of care you you know you hope you're buying yeah that's that's great Okay, well, that's thing that's really interesting. So, what what's next for ONG? Do you want to continue to develop the lines you have over because you know started from the furniture and then now if a, a hardware what is beautiful, the light fixtures, the mirrors, you have other projects yeah. in the in that's your. That's a good question. I think you know the one of the biggest challenge is um, designs and ideas. Uh, have to keep pace with running a business. So the challenge right now is, you know, how to um, how to kind of keep going with all of these design ideas, and then, and then at the same time, you know, make sure that um, you know that that the business can keep up with them, and it all adds up at the end of the day. Uh, we have a lot of exciting things that we're working on right now. Um, you know, furniture, and uh, um, we started last year with. Uh, a group of lighting that was all sandcast brass, which kind of goes back to my. It is beautiful. Thank it is you. Beautiful, really, really beautiful. 
I really love, you know, the, the potential of what that has to offer. So we have, uh, we have a number of pieces where we're kind of working on, you know, interesting ways um, to either integrate that or create pieces entirely from that. Our uh, Inlet Lounge, uh, which we showed the first time last year, um, beautiful sort of Windsor-inspired barrel chair um, with the upholstered cushion we are working on extending that line and um and a new group of case pieces of uh dressers that we'll should sort of be launching shortly and you introduced uh, marble as well in your line yes mm. yeah the um and the, you know the the marble you know, our pieces are very much about the material i think you know that the material that sort of elemental type of material to me feels like an integral part of things. And so that's where the that sandcast brass and where you know, the hardwoods that we use, the ash and maple and marble um, and everything that we've used so far has been your kind of classic uh, Carrara marble. Seems like one of those beautiful, elemental, timeless materials. And hopefully we'll get to play around a little with you know some more unusual finds, kind of more in the vein of the one-of-kind pieces we've done but um but i really enjoy it uh, as an integration to the line and the things that i really loved as well was your hardware which is a detail of a chair of a, a winter chair and it's mm -hmm. um, heavy brass and you have this specificity that um we can choose to have it kind of finished or we can also you can also choose the option to have it more kind of, I would say, raw, and it's going to patina on, its, on itself. Yeah, so, so we offer it, and maybe we use the wrong term. We say finishes. Really, we offer it in three different surfaces. So a polished surface, which is like mirror polish, uh, a tumbled, which is this beautiful, soft, kind of like, you know, non-directional surface, and then a mat, which is very you know, frosty looking. And all of, the, all of our standards are a live finish, meaning they will patina over time and oh, all of them see i have this yes. understand. yeah and that really? i love the fact that it patina over time that makes you know a big difference because it's uh, alive it is and it's um it's very much uh it, it, you know, for the people that love it there's nothing like it uh and it's funny it's you know it's one of those things that it's difficult to find there's brass everywhere but like just to get it unlacquered is like you, you're gonna hit a wall most of the time um, we do offer them lacquered, but I, our preference is for the live finish. And I'm actually, I'm talking to you from my kitchen and the, uh, the long 14 inch pole that I'm looking at that my, that's on the, uh, cabinet where my kids keep all of their snacks is a very different color than <laughs> the cabinets where we keep, you know, the, the, the glasses and the things that are, you know, less often used. And I love that about it. Um, and I think, you know, it's something that, it, again, it kind of makes it part of everyday life. It does not fit that pristine, everything is as fresh as the day you bought it idea. Um, and some people, you know, really enjoy that. This is, this is sort of the opposite of that in that like, it's, you know, it's like a pair of jeans. You don't expect them to be the same after a year than they were on day one. Yeah, that's true. And usually they get always, they get better. Yes. Yeah, they are even more. Okay, great. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. Uh, I know you're very busy, you know, running all your 
a design idea, your business. So thank you very much for being with us today. No, thank you, Valerie. It's nice to talk with you again. Thanks to Jonathan for taking the time to meet with me to discuss his journey. I hope you have enjoyed listening to our conversation. The creativity and the level of skill you will discover on exploring ONG's work will not disappoint you. If you would like to learn more about ONG, visit their website at ongstudio.com. You can also continue to follow along on Instagram at ongstudio. This podcast is an ongoing creative conversation for anyone who looks around and sees the added textures in their world and want to know more about who is doing it. Be sure to share textures with your friends and community. Find your preferred listening platform at valeriedegras.com slash podcast or listen to us on Spotify. Follow so that you don't miss any episode. Thank you for listening. A bientôt.